back. I had a couple more stories left over from the first segment that I think we need to just kind of blow through, being that they are follow-up, as mentioned in some previous stories. We talked, I don't know, last year about how down in Kern County they take uh, good, clean, drinkable water that's being sent to Southern California. Instead of putting it uh, on farmland or feeding it to our metropolitan areas, they pump it into the ground to help extract oil. Well, this issue is popping up in other places, apparently out in Colorado, according to a piece by Jack Healy in the New York Times. Oil firms are vying for scarce water. This is pitting farmers against oil and gas interests, uh, which, of course, involves this new drilling techniques where they use powerful streams of water, sand, and chemicals to crack the ground and release stores of oil and gas. Fracking is what it's known by in other places. Notes the piece, a single such well can require 5 million gallons of water. Energy companies are flocking to water auctions, farm ponds, irrigation ditches, and municipal fire hydrants to get what they need. And of course, after this this country's summer record-breaking drought, which dried up a lot of wells and ruined crops, well, the concerns are only being amplified. Farmers and environmental activists say they're worried that deep-pocketed energy companies will be able to snag increasingly scarce water supplies as they drill deep new wells that uh, use the technique of hydraulic fracturing. Said Peter Anderson, who grows corn and alfalfa, it's not a level playing field. I don't think in reality the farmer can compete with oil and gas companies for that water. Their return is a hell of a lot better than ours. We'll have to keep an eye on that story. And a little more upbeat note, we have... um, This item from San Francisco, apparently an otter has taken up residence among the ruins of the Sutro Baths in San Francisco. It's a picture in the bee of the otter, which has been called Sutro Sam, carrying seaweed back to a nest underneath the concrete remnants of the historic baths. It's noted that river otters once thrived in the Bay Area, but development and pollution took a toll on the local population, to say the least. I grew up in the Bay Area. I never saw an otter. They suspect this one may have swum across the Golden Gate from Marin County to sit to take up residence. This is not, by the way, a sea otter, such as the kind that delight tourists down the Monterey area. This is a river otter. And uh, we do hope that Sutro Sam is the first of many that will repopulate uh, uh, the areas um, south of the North Bay. This has allowed me to segue into a... Uh, a piece from the San Francisco Chronicle dating back to May 27th that talked about how the Sutro Baths in San Francisco provided a civil rights test case. Now, the Sutro Baths were an enclosed area that were a popular places to swim as late as the 1950s and uh, 1960s. Noted the piece by Elaine Ellenson in the Chronicle. Back in 1897, they were at the heart of a racial discrimination lawsuit. Back in August First of that year, a man named John Harris sued former San Francisco Mayor Adolph Sutro over the color bar at the baths. Harris, an African-American, charged he was not allowed in the pools solely on the basis of his race. The baths apparently had opened up earlier that year, and on the 4th of July, Harris joined several white friends and headed for a swim at the new amusement center out by the Cliff House. He paid his 25-cent fee, but he alone among his friends was denied admission. Harris filed suit in San Francisco Superior Court just months after the U.S.'s notorious Plessy versus Ferguson case before the U.S. Supreme Court. 
a case which ruled that separate facilities were allowed per the U.S. Constitution as long as they were equal. Harris apparently filed his case under the Dibble Civil Rights Act, which apparently was California's first civil rights law. It provided a direct link from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Act here in in the 60s. The UNRWA Civil Rights Act, which is enforced today, prohibits discrimination on racial, gender, religious, and ethnic grounds. Now, back in 1897 here in California, we enacted the Dibble Civil Rights Act, which provided for desegregation of the schools and equal access to transportation and public accommodations. The law mandated that all citizens of every color or race whatsoever shall be entitled to the full and equal facilities of all places of public accommodation or amusement. Apparently, the African American Assembly Club set aside funds to bring test cases to put teeth in the new law, and John Harris brought the first successful one in San Francisco. The piece notes that in response to the lawsuit, the Sutro Bath superintendent stated, Negroes, so long as they are sober and well-behaved, are allowed to enter the baths as spectators, but are not permitted to go in the water. Edgar Sutro, described as Adolph's son who'd been taking responsibility for running the baths, told the Call newspaper, it would be ruinous to allow Negroes in the baths because the white people would be unwilling to mingle with them. Fortunately, under the 1897 law, Harris won his suit. And so were numerous other similar suits in the state of California, but notes the piece, sadly, over the decades, the law seems to have been forgotten. In 1959, when Assembly Speaker Jesse Unruh championed the Unruh Civil Rights Act, many applauded as the state's first Civil Rights Act. It certainly was not that, but the landmark legislation did become the model for other states' laws and for the historic Civil Rights Act of 1964, signed by President Lyndon Johnson. Elaine Ellenson's piece uh, concluded by noting that a careful look at its legislature history reveals that Unruh's law simply amended Dibble's 1897 law. All right, right, let's move away from things taking place here in the U.S. and take a trip uh, halfway around the world down to Australia. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Pamela. Thank you for having me. How's the weather down there, by the way? Pretty damn hot? It's beautiful. <laughs> it's uh, humid and sunny, and I have a tan for the first time in months. First of all, let's comment about the joke we sent you some weeks back about uh, comparing our two nations. Yeah, apparently someone from Australia commented, well, you know, thank God we got the prisoners and they got the Puritans. <laughs> comparing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that gave me a chuckle. Thank you. I'll pass it on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, I think in your case you came out ahead on that deal. Definitely. And only 12% of, of current-day Australians are related to the convicts as well, so we've just about spread out. I did not know that. Days. Yeah, wow. but you still have the Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. You sent an, a, a piece some weeks back about a tsunami potential off a canyon near the Great Barrier Reef. This is quite a shocker. What's the deal with that? Well, it's probably been over-sensationalized. Uh, because it could happen today, it could happen this afternoon, or it might happen in a million years. But basically they come across one cubic kilometre, which is about half a mile, slab of seafloor, and it's teetering. And it will collapse one day, but we just don't know when. But when that does happen, we're going to have a tsunami probably three or four times that we just saw in Fukushima recently. Whoa, you're, you're on what floor in your building? <laughs> I have a two-story townhouse, so yeah, I'll be losing my house. Here's some advice. Move up to the fourth floor. (laughs) Right. It might not happen for a million years as well. 
Well, we limited the gun here in the west coast of the U.S. of various uh, earthquake potentials, so I guess it's just something we got to live with. That's right. Uh, so I do have a life jacket. I am prepared. <laughs> and uh, just so, <laughs> so I can at least float above it. But this data came from the same ship where the scientist Maria Seaton discovered recently that the South Pacific landmass identified on Google Earth and world maps as Sandy Island no longer exists. Yes. So is the theory that they just made a mistake back in the 1700s, or what's the deal? It could be that they made a mistake, or it could be that it's now underwater due to ice melting. Hmm. That's something that we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, when islands start popping off, we better start paying attention. We'll talk about science and the year in science, and I think what better person to do it than you. And in our, in our own way, we are uniting two great institutions of this station, This Week in Science, which you're the Australian correspondent, and, uh, and our show, which you're also the Australian correspondent for. Right. So, um, so let's talk science. Just start out by asking your opinion about how we were settling up on some of those. Sure. Well, you, you talked about a few things that I actually think are quite related anyway. You spoke about uh, overeating and, uh, and obesity being an epidemic and that gastro bypass surgery being the cure for diabetes. And I actually just uh, this week watched a recent documentary done by the BBC called Why Are Thin People Not Fat? Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is most of the, uh, the obesity studies have been done on obese people. And this study looked at people who can't get fat. Yes. And, and they tried to make them get fat. Have you seen these studies? I have not seen these studies, but it's obvious that that would be, it could, could be a productive uh, uh, avenue of exploration. That's right. Well, there was actually, a study was done 40 years ago in the 1960s by Dr. Ethan Sims, and he did an experiment on uh, prisoners, which is unethical to do now, but uh, back then he was uh, overfeeding them to see how many he could actually get to get fat, and the aim, I believe, was about 25% to, to increase their fat by 25%, and several, several of them plateaued at 18%. No matter what they did, even over a year of overeating, they did not get past the 18%. So why do they think that was? Evolution reasons, actually. The, the people who are obese now are more evolved. They were the, the surviving fittest because they could, uh, when, when food was abundant, they could store it and then live off that for longer. But now that food is in abundance, it, they're not surviving. That's an interesting study. Of course, uh, we talked on last week's show about how there's two parallel items here relating to, uh, to obesity. One is the fact that uh, we're learning about the microbes we have in us, which are clearly playing a role in who can get fat and who cannot. And then the, the fact that the bi- since bypass surgery works to cure diabetes in no time flat, obviously there's some, some very important things about how the uh, food is plumbed through us that we've been overlooking. Parallel issues. With the, the, this documentary that I also uh, watched, it delved into a, a recent study, and it looked at the bacteria that you were speaking of as well. Yeah. But apparently that the viruses or the bacteria that uh, can make you obese only last for a few months anyway. So if, if, you're, if you're a naturally thin person, you can actually expel that. That's what they were looking at. Oh, really? It's one I would recommend people having a look at. You can look it up on YouTube. It's just called, Why Are Thin People Not Fat? They did it much more uh, ethically than they did it 40 years ago. They <laughs> said that if anyone hit the, hit the 15% mark, they were going to be sent home because it would be unethical to ask them to go any fatter than that. But not one of them made it past 9%, and a lot of them couldn't even make their caloric intake. They were trying, and they would just vomit involuntarily. Wow. So thin, thin people are survi- they're the fittest, we're the fittest surviving now, uh, but back then, you know, obese people are actually more evolved than we are. Interesting. And, of course, you and I talked in this program some weeks back about the issue of sugar with that fabulous uh, article in Cosmos magazine. And uh, that's something we're going to take a real hard look at in 2013. 
Oh, definitely, yeah. If I, if I may sort of go on a tangent there and yeah, go into a bit of science, science fiction, uh, one of the, I think, one of the underestimated sci-fi shows of the 90s was Sliders. Did you ever get into that? I don't know the first thing about it, I'm sorry to say. Okay. No, that's right. It, that's why it was underestimated. It was probably actually too sciencey and too highbrow for most people, so it didn't continue. But I remember the Sliders is about a parallel Earth, so they were actually traveling from Earth to Earth to Earth, and... It, you know, one small change uh, can, the butterfly effect, you know, you can have a completely different Earth. And one of the planets, or one of the Earths they travel to on this show, you had to have a license or you had to have a, a letter from your lawyer saying that you were allowed to eat junk food. And I thought that was brilliant. Well, I'm sorry to hear that on the other Earths there also are lawyers, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Any other things that we were making fun of that you wanted to augment those comments on from last week's program? The Higgs boson comes to mind. Oh, that's just an embarrassment. Well, I, I, Pamela, my problem is that, you know, when they keep saying, oh, my God, this is a momentous discovery they think they've made. I'm like, okay, stop, stop. Have you found this thing or not? And if you have, what the hell is it? The fact that nobody can explain why it's so important, uh, I just find disturbing. Well, if they don't find it, which I don't think they're going to now, what has it been, three years since they turned on the Large Hadron Collider? It was I don't 2009, know. wasn't it? They're saying they have it now. Do they have it? They say it's the three million to one shot that we, we, ha we do have it. We take a three million to one shot that we're wrong, but... But I don't know. Then they're saying, well, maybe it's a... Of course, you guys talked about this on This Week in Science. Maybe it's a. It's an even more exotic particle. You know, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, maybe, but maybe not. So where You know we what I'm thinking? What? I'm, I'm thinking they found it in the first week, <laughs> but if they tell us, they have, they'll all lose their jobs. <laughs> I, I have a personal... Uh, 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 notion that Dave Barry, the comedic writer, may be right. He thinks he envisions guys sitting around these colliders with a picture of daiquiris going, Hey, did you see it? Yeah, yeah, they just went by now. <laughs> Having a grand old time. Right. Something like that. Yeah, no, I, I don't know what I don't know if they know what they're doing now. I, yeah. I don't either, but we're gonna I'm gonna have we're they gonna found it, have they not? Well, Radio Parallax is definitely not going to give that the number one science story of the year, which not only puts us at odds with Discover Magazine, but Science, the, the journal Science, just ranked that as the number one story of last year, too. So, I don't know. I guess we're running against the tide. And something else you mentioned as well, you, you said, uh, why was, what was his name, Felix? Oh, Baumgartner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why was he a science story? Well, he did do something that no human has ever done before. I, I have to, okay, it's a science-y story. I mean, he went up really high where you'll die in no time flat if you're not in a space suit. And I guess the theory was he was helped by one of the, um, actually one of the, sad story, one of the husbands of the of the woman who died in the, I guess, the Columbia crack up when it came back into the atmosphere. He was interested in creating a space suit that would allow an astronaut to survive a breakup of the spacecraft. And that was part of the design that went into this thing. But uh, I think the applications are going to be pretty limited for whatever spacesuit Mr. Baumgartner had on. But I don't know. I hadn't heard that part of it. That is sad. But that's good that he's gotten something good out of it. I'm hoping something good will come out of it. Otherwise, it's just kind of well, like... Well, he survived. Well, he did. But it's, you know, how far removed is that hit from, from Evil Knievel? It's my, my question. <laughs> did Evil Knievel advance science by jumping over 12 buses at, you know, at the Caesars Palace in Las Vegas? You know, I'm not sure. So I don't know how much it's going to advance science, but it, it gives us a look at what humans can endure. <laughs> I guess so. I hope so.
for our discussion, I pulled out the Discover again just to kind of thumb through it. And there, there's a couple that, that catch my eye this time we didn't talk about on last week's show. Maybe you and I can talk about it. A lot of people, I know myself included, I'm sure you as well, are quite skeptical about genetically modified organisms. Oh, yes. But there's a number 24 says that the journal Nature did a study of transgenetic cotton. The study was done in China saying that in China, by reducing the amount of pesticides that were needed in this transgenetic cotton, it, it, it meant that there were much fewer pest numbers and that those pests were actually then better controlled by the, the insects that ate them and that because they weren't spraying as many uh, pesticides, those insects were surviving. So they said, at least in the Chinese setting, there was a potential for these GMOs to have a, a positive effect. I, I thought that was interesting. It is interesting, but... Other studies have been done and found that, you know, without mass industrial agriculture as it is today, whether it's in China, Australia, America, or wherever, soil itself is, is not nutrient-rich. It's very nutrient-poor. And the studies have been done that if the nutrients is in the soil, as it used to be 50 years ago, guess what? Pests don't eat the plants because the plants can naturally fend them off, and you don't need the pesticides. Well, I think GMOs are a technology that, um, you know, are going to have potentially some benefits, but boy, there's some downsides that I, I think that, like when you see in cases where the economic interest may override what's best, the fact that companies are making buku bucks off this may may mean that they're, well, it will mean that they're going to lobby very hard for something that continues the revenue stream, you know, even if the studies are showing that, you know, it's sketchy. That's right. And we just don't know. They haven't been around long enough to know what the effects are going to be long term. So they shouldn't be introduced to the general population until we know that. And that's true of anything, whether it's a a drug and and essentially injecting parts of one plant or or even animal into another plant is is worse in some ways than uh, just than releasing drugs. Well, a caveat, too, I want to add to that comment about the Chinese study. In China, they have small farms, and in China, it would be possible to have predatory insects, you know, alongside these fields because they don't have to go for miles till you can find a, a stand of, of basically uh, native plants. In America, we don't do farming that way anymore. They're, they're huge farms, so uh, you wouldn't expect this bonus um, in America like you might see in China. Comparison there as well. By the way, how big are your farms down in Australia? Do you guys do these massive agricultural stands like we have in America? Or are they are they a little more uh, small scale? Uh, our farms usually require helicopters. <laughs> well, I guess I guess the answer is that. Yeah, but remember how how big my country is. Uh, sorry, how unpopulated the center of my country is, where a lot of the farming is. But uh, yeah, they, they require helicopters for sure. Oh, and for those who aren't aware, uh, January 28th is the beginning of a five-week course via Coursera and the University of Edinburgh in astrobiology and the search for extraterrestrial life. Who else is doing that course? Because I'm enrolled. Wow. Well, let us know what you guys learn. Speaking of that, uh, <laughs> sure. the, the fact that um, down where you live, you can see Alpha Centauri, which is really a, a double and, and some believe triple system. Uh, the fact that you now have a planet that's orbiting Alpha Centauri, at least the smaller of the two stars. That's pretty cool stuff because uh, some did the math not that long ago and said they didn't think that planets could be found around multiple star systems, and now we're finding them all over the place. And 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 right here in our own neighborhood, as it were, four light years away. Pretty cool. It is, and that's right. I mean, I, I think you've actually said before yourself you're not sure why uh, NASA is, is so hesitant to confirm water when we know that there's water everywhere. Well, this is the same thing. Planets are everywhere. 
and, and we're finding that we're just going to find more and more and more. And we're just, the more we find, the more we're going to know that we don't know anything. <laughs> well, it is often true that the more you know, the more you know you don't know. But uh, that's probably no better illustrated by the fact that we on this program have been champing at the bit, Pamela, to bring on um, Dr. Ed Stone from Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was the, the science director of the Voyager missions. Now, for years, they keep saying, geez, the Voyagers are just about to go into interstellar space. But then a year goes by, they keep saying, well, it hasn't quite gotten there yet. And the latest is that as it nears the edge of the, uh, the heliopause, where our, our, our sun's um, effect, in essence, stops, they're finding that there's kind of on this, uh, this track of, of, of particles is going by. I think this is an interaction between space and and the sun, and they don't know when they're going to pass through that. And, I, you know, Ed Stone's not getting any younger. We may have to bring him on the show just to record something for when the moment does come. Oh, that's terrible. But something I will add to that as well, we were speaking about this on This Week in Science recently on the 21-hour extravaganza that they had, and one of the things we were talking about was with Voyager 1, and we hoped that Voyager was actually before Unix, because otherwise it could be affected by the Unix calendar ending, because we were speaking about the main calendar ending, and that might turn Voyager off or corrupt it. What is the Unix calendar? What is that? Well, you know how you have a, a Windows calendar, I think that, well, I know that, ends in uh, 2099. And uh, you know how we had the, the Y2K scare that didn't yeah. really happen because everything was turning over. So Unix calendar is, I believe, that's finishing in about 2038 or something like that. I'd have to look that up. But Voyager, if, if Voyager was pre-Unix, then that's okay. But if Voyager has a Unix calendar, it could become corrupted. In 2038, it doesn't have enough power. The plutonium won't last so that should okay, so that shouldn't be, be an issue. Oh, that's sad. It's going to be dead by then anyway. <laughs> well, they planned for 2015 to 2020 was what they said back in the 70s, and and you know it's 20 2013, and we're that that little that little machine is still sending back data. You gotta love it. Oh, I do. All right, Pamela, head of the Kansas Astronomy Club. Here's one that's really irksome. Um, that apparently they've been looking out at Uranus, and that is the correct pronunciation. We would add for our listeners. Uh, from the Keck Observatory, and they now see there's all these bands on it. They, they got photographs of it. It looks like Jupiter. It looks really complicated, all these weather patterns. And, you know, where was this? Unfortunately, when, when we sent the Voyager spacecraft past Uranus in 1986, the North Pole or the South Pole, one of the poles, had been pointing at the sun for so long that we basically flew at this this planet that was tipped over on its side, and there was it was a featureless ball. Now that it's had a chance to make a quarter turn 20 years around the sun and its 80 year, you know, its 80 year cycle, all of a sudden there's weather all over the place. And I guess, I guess there's nothing we can do about that. But uh, I guess thank, I guess where I'm going with this is thank God for the people at the Keck Observatory that are continuing to monitor because stuff really is going on in, in, in Uranus's atmosphere. Well, why can't we send another probe and one that goes a bit faster this time? <laughs> well, part of the reason for that is that I don't know, I'm sure you know this story, that some bright spark, I forget his name, but we mean, we got we to gotta do this story. Mark this down in the calendar. You and I will do this story in the future. Some bright spark in the late 60s was doing the math for future space missions, and he noticed that, hey, if we go out to Jupiter and Saturn in the 70s, the way the planets align, you can get a free ride, you can get a, a, a gravitational boost past Jupiter, past Saturn, and then out to Uranus and Neptune. And when they launched... They were in the right window, and that's where they were able to speed 
The first Voyager, they said, to hell with it. We're supposed to go to Jupiter and Saturn. We're going to play it safe. But with the second one, they said, okay, we got our mission. The first one succeeded. So on the second mission, let's program it to go to Uranus and Neptune. So I guess you could do it again when Jupiter comes around, but you can't get the Jupiter and Saturn bank shot like they did in the 70s. That's okay. We can rely on better technology, though, to make up for that. Well, if, if we did send some, some you know, better, better motors out there. And speaking of motors, let's talk about Vesta, that wonderful uh, New Horizons spacecraft using an ion engine. It went out very slowly with this very slow thrust, got right up into Vesta. They think that Vesta was a protoplanet. Um, they now know that, well, they've known for some time that a lot of the um, meteorites we have here on the Earth are from Vesta. So we can study Vesta right here on the Earth, which is a, a rare opportunity. But it's blasted off and it's headed out for series, and we'll get there, I guess, in 2015. Really, really cool technology. Well, in answer to your rhetorical question, I don't know why we're not sending more spacecraft out there. Uh, uh, NASA's making some decisions now about what to do. They're going to spend a lot of money on Mars, but doggone it, there's some cool stuff out there at, uh, at Jupiter's moon, some cool stuff out at Saturn, and it'd be such a shame if we don't, you know, go out there as well. We need to keep exploring, and, and money should not be an obstacle for further in enhancement of our knowledge of, as a human race. Well, Pamela, I think we've burned up our, our, our segment here, but uh, I guess I guess we we covered a few things, but there's so much more to cover, and we'll just have to tackle it again on a monthly basis. What do you say? For sure. There's always more, so just give me a call. You know where to find me? <laughs> Indeed we do. 